Having Sage approved audio for our car rides is a literal lifesaver for my nervous system and I love making lists of podcasts to share with him when he's ready. I was so excited to hear about a new show called Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as M-A-T-H, math, geared toward the six plus crowd. Every episode follows two best friends, Max and Molly, who work together to solve riddles and math equations during their time traveling adventures. Recently, we had some family visiting, and on our way to dinner, we popped on an episode of Mysteries About True Histories, Math, with my niece and nephew in the car. In this episode, Max and Molly travel back in time to solve a mystery from the order of the problem solvers, along with lots of kid humor mixed in. It was a fun way to enjoy our car ride together and opened the door for some interesting conversation about history and understanding some of the mysteries of the past. Episodes drop every Thursday and are about 15 minutes long, the perfect length for car rides and meal times, and stacked with so much laughter that your kiddos won't even realize how much they're learning. So tune in to Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. Hey there, you're listening to Voices of Your Village, episode number 12. There are so many topics that I don't have the answers on, that I am definitely not an expert in, and for those topics, I am looking for folks to talk to. So I look for other experts in the field, I look for people who have walked this path um, that I can talk through this with and get some answers. One of the things I had gotten a lot of questions from you about was race. How do we talk to our tiny humans about race? What's our role as a white community, a black community, brown communities? Many of you were asking for the language to use with children and at what age to introduce different topics or content or subjects and I didn't have these answers for you, so I reached out to Dr. Stevenson. He is a professor at UPenn and a wealth of knowledge. He has done research on racial socialization for the last 30 years and did such an amazing job of breaking down takeaways for us to bring into the classroom, to bring home, to talk to our tiny humans about and how to do that in the language that we can use. I will say one thing. I think that if you're listening to this and thinking, oh, my kid is too young for this, or um, I don't know how to do this, so I'm not going to have this conversation, I I think that there's a lot of privilege in being able to choose that. There are a number of families out there that have to talk about this because they have to prepare their children for what life could look like and for realities and possibilities. And I think it's our job, especially in the white community, to be talking about this and raising children who are mindful of differences and are working to create equality across race and gender and socioeconomics and abilities. And I think that we need to look at these topics that might make us feel uncomfortable and figure out how to have these conversations and to approach this content because it's so vital that we bring everyone along with us on this journey. So let's dive in and build that racial literacy.
Welcome to Voices of Your Village, a place where parents, caregivers, teachers, and experts come to support one another on this wild ride of raising tiny humans. We combine decades of experience with the latest research to create the modern parenting village. Let's dive into honest conversation about real parenting challenges so it doesn't have to be this hard. I'm your host, sleep consultant, child development specialist, and passionate feminist, Alyssa Blast Campbell. Hey everyone, today I'm going to dive into a topic that I've learned about largely in my adult life. It feels kind of embarrassing to admit this, but I know that I'm not alone here. I feel so grateful to have the opportunity to talk with Dr. Stevenson. Dr. Stevenson is a Constance Clayton Professor of Urban Education and a Professor of Africana Studies at UPenn. He's leading the way in racial socialization. I'm excited to pick his brain about how to address race in early childhood. Dr. Stevenson, thank you kindly for sharing your amazing work, research, and brilliant brain with us today. Can you start us off by sharing a bit about your background and what led you to where you are today? Um, yes, thank you, Alyssa. Um, I, I started out, um, honestly, thinking about race and the politics of race growing up in a family, which I think of as very multicultural. All my, my, my mother and father were both African-American, but uh, and I'm the oldest of, of three, my brother Brian and my sister Christy. But um, my parents grew up in two different worlds. And uh, my mother grew up in North Philadelphia, which is very urban. Um, and my father grew up in Southern Delaware, which is very country. And, and they're different cultural styles um, and how they problem solve, particularly issues of race, are sort of in our growing up years from the very beginning um, makes me think of my family as multicultural and as the, the issues of race and politics of difference is what I've been excited about for a very long time because we talked about it a lot. And even when we didn't talk about it, we had issues to deal with that were happening in our, in our very rural Southern Delaware neighborhood. And um, so um, as a clinical psychologist, I've always been interested um, um, in how to study these issues, the fears that people have. And I also have two boys, um, 127 and 113. And, and so it's really my children, I would say, that have pushed me to stay in this field and think about how children and parents of children think about race. I am excited to kind of dive into the, the differences that you experienced growing up with the urban versus rural connection and then how different listeners can relate to that. Um, I grew up in a very rural uh, neighborhood in upstate New York and a town of about a thousand, probably more cows than people, and uh, have since lived in cities. And there's just a huge contrast in terms of uh, how so many things are approached, but race being one of them. Uh, And I think that's why I said in the intro that I really didn't dive into the discussion of race in general until I was an adult because it largely wasn't talked about as a kid. Um, And I guess that's something I really want to dive into next is the difference between racial bias and being racist or saying something that's racist. I guess for, for me, I have like a hard time discerning what is, what falls under what umbrella, right? I think there are not a lot of people that would say, openly like I am racist 
yet there are a lot of things that are said in everyday life that are racist. And um, so I kind of want to dive into the difference between those two. Sure. Well, um, you know, the way that we use these words uh, colloquially or everyday language is very different than the meaning that when we study it, because um, the, the notion of being a racist has taken on such incredible political and interpersonal um, personality overtones. So that when we say somebody is a racist, we often are talking not just about what they do, but also who they are. And, and um, so when people either get called a racist or use it, they're really trying to get at that you're a bad person. And I think that oversteps the bounds of how we think about how racial politics actually happen or how they hurt us. So um, we, in my work, we don't think of races as a very good way to understand how people struggle with race. But it is a way people use to defend themselves as well as to identify something that they have no other language for, right? And so racial bias is different in the sense that all of us have learned in, in our society because of our history to think about um, race as a particular variable or thing that happens to us, where there are some who are higher uh, in popularity and smartness and beauty uh, on a racial spectrum, and then others who are, you know, lower. And that that's the notion that we think of some people who are racially different as better than um, or less than others is a kind of bias. And I would argue that we, our families and our society has helped to teach us to think about who's better, who's smarter, who's who's more beautiful along racial lines. And that can be unconscious. It can be something we don't even know that we're doing, but we still uh, support um, um, implicitly or unconsciously or consciously. And um, uh, I would I would separate those two terms on a, on a number of levels. Um, so um, that's that's one explanation. Yeah. Thank you. Um, when we when I think of bias, I think it's something that it's really hard to identify, right? Like what our bias is. And it takes a lot of like introspection and um, self-reflection to, to be able to identify that. Personally, I've, we, I, in my classroom, we do a lot of reflective practice. And uh, the other day we were in a team meeting and as a woman and a sexual assault survivor, I stated that it's hard for me when my toddler boys in the classroom who are just one-year-olds are like throwing their bodies on top of the other kids in the class. And I feel myself very quick to jump to them and to um, really try and enforce the idea of consensual touch uh, right from the get-go, more so with the boys in my classroom than I do with the girls. And uh, we really talked about like what this is and where it's coming from and bringing it back to my own fears. And um, so I heard you say before that parents parent according to their fears. And I think there's so much truth to that. Um, and so I kind of like to dive into like, how do we start to go about looking at what our biases are? Um, and then how we can be mindful of, of how we're speaking to our children and responding to our children. Yeah, you brought up a very important issue, and I think 
when um, we think of bias, it can be a preference for or a preference against. It doesn't necessarily mean that we are hostile towards someone. Um, bias can result from being very favorable about someone else or um, a group. I think of them favorably, even if I don't have negative feelings about a different group. And um, the idea about parents, um, I, I think when I mentioned parents, um, parent according to the fears, not only that they have, but they fear that their children will run into because of their difference. So when we think of parents of students of color or students who are different um, or even different in gender, um, sometimes our own personal fears as parents creep up from our own experiences as children, as young people. But then some of us know that the world might treat my child of color who's brown skin or dark brown skin very differently. And I'm scared of that. And that fear that something might happen to them also influences our decision-making. And sometimes we might preempt or wait before we act and or communicate what we want our children to experience or be prepared for because of those fears. So the fears are personal, but they're also rooted in discrimination that happens to kids who are different in our society. Um, and, I, and I would argue that, you know, um, the more we know, and usually when I work with parents, I, I start with your, your own childhood. What, was, what were racial politics like when you were growing up? What message did you hear when you were growing up? So that we start first with parents' narratives around what race and racial bias looks like. And then we can get into how do you think your own children will navigate the world uh, or how the world will think about them because they're different. And, and, and how, how would that affect your decision-making on their behalf? This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Being back to work after maternity leave has been so good and frankly, so hard. I love what I do and I missed collaborating with my team while I was out and it's been a tough transition. The combination of a packed schedule and still being the milk machine for Mila Bean, it's hard to juggle everything. I feel so grateful for my weekly therapy hour. Sometimes I'm just holding so much and I need a safe space to let it out and get it off my chest. I've noticed that when I don't release it, it comes out anyway, but usually in ways that aren't aligned with how I want to show up in the world. BetterHelp is such a convenient, flexible option for parents who just can't take the travel time to get to an in-person therapy visit. It's entirely online. You can show up in your jammies, always a win in my book, and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you're on your way to feeling heard. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash voices today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash voices. This podcast is sponsored by Active Skin Repair, a skin health company helping people heal with natural, non-toxic, medical-grade ingredients. Active Skin Repair uses a molecule called hypochlorous acid, which mimics our natural immune response to cleanse, soothe irritation, reduce inflammation, and support healing. We've been loving Active Skin Repair for all the cuts and scrapes that show up in the active toddler life. Sage loves that there's both the spray version, but also a cream version. He likes to get to choose which one he's gonna do. He calls it the magic cream. 
And it's been so great for taking care of Mila's neck rash now that she's full on teething. Can we get a minute for a teething three and a half month old? What in the world? Active Skin Repair has thousands of five-star reviews and the ingredients so safe and clean, they can be used from the youngest member of the family to the oldest. Keeping it simple with one soothing solution for all your family's skin health needs. Visit www.activeskinrepair.com to learn more about Active Skin Repair and to get 20% off your order, use code VILLAGE. That's www.activeskinrepair.com, code VILLAGE for 20% off your order. I think that's, that, that one hit home a little bit um, in that I, I thought of a story that my, from my childhood when my dad, I remember asking to do something. I have four brothers and I'm the only girl. And I was asking to do something and he said no. And I was like, but, but the boys got to do it. And he said, yeah, and you're a girl and it's not going to be fair. Um, and it, it, he, was, he was afraid. I wanted to go to the drive-in movie theater. And for him, me being there as a, as a female was not a safe choice. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I, I, it, it really was his fear that started that. So it's very interesting. Um, can you talk to me? I've heard you mention the, the term racial socialization, and I'd love to dive into yeah. what that is and what it means for parents. Sure. Um, sometimes we, we also make a distinction between what is race versus what is racial. So race is often a term that we tend to use when we think of status, static groups. So that black versus white versus brown, Latino versus, you know, African-American versus Korean. There's a way in which race gets very uh, narrow, that we're either one thing or we're something else, categorical. Racial is really about what are the lived experiences of being black or being white or being Latino or being black from the South versus black from the North. So what are the racially lived experiences that we go through? So racial socialization is really um, asking, you know, does it matter if parents talk to their children about race and how they think about the world? And also, does it matter how parents talk to their children about how to deal with their racially lived experience, that some people interact with them because of their difference? And so do parents prepare or not prepare their children for these experiences? Some decide um, not to because they don't want to make their children feel bad. Um, and we know that even for children very young, parents are worried about this before their children are even born. So when we study parents of color, they are often, when they find out the gender of the child <laughs> before the child is born, some will cry because they think about you know, what will she go through or what will he go through because of their difference? And so thinking about what parents really struggle with, um, pre preparation for a racialized life is what racial socialization is really about. And there are different ways to do it. You know, you can support your children by teaching them to be proud about their racial differences um, or their culture. You could teach them how to prepare when somebody doesn't think that culture or race is um, positive and to 
you know, know that some people will be very hostile and, and how to not internalize that hostility. So um, racial socialization, and we've been studying it for 30 years, we think has demonstrated to be a very protective factor when, when parents can engage in it in an open manner in a very direct, uh, explicit sort of skills building manner. That encompasses quite a lot. Um, and it sounds like there's, a, 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 as you mentioned, a few different ways that people approach it. And uh, I want to learn, like, from what you've studied, what have you found most successful in terms of, like, what do kids need to hear in order to be assertive and stand up for themselves? Um, and also on on the side of like any white parents who are listening, what should we be talking to kids about on that side as well? And and how young? Like when if my families are you know have toddlers, like where does this start? And how do we start this conversation uh, with our tiny humans? Sure, um, we think, and I think all all parents, regardless of your racial background, should be engaged in racial socialization because all children are involved and influenced by a world that thinks of race along a hierarchy. And um, it's hard to find any place in this country, I would argue, where there isn't an assumption about your race, either positive or negative, that would influence your well-being. So um, at the heart of race, racial politics or difference-making is dehumanization. So we think that at the core of racism, um, or bias is an ultimate sense that you are not human or you're not human enough or your humanity is less than our humanity. And so we expect that in the, the conversations or in the delivery of, of the feedback or racial socialization, there should be four elements, affection, protection, correction, and connection. Affection is the sense of caring and loving about who you are. Your humanity is not questioned. You deserve affection. I'm going to deliver. Whatever I say to you, I'm going to do it in love. Um, protection is whatever I say to you, I'm going to teach you about how to protect yourself and how um, it's my job to protect you, even if you don't know how the world might treat you because you're different. Correction or accountability is about um, I also have to let you know when you're when you're out of balance with how the world might see you or I have to somehow challenge you on how you're not seeing how the world might see you. And then connection is how do I, my teaching and socializing you now relate to how you're going to um, uh, cope when we're not around, when parents aren't there. And so um, I would say that um, some parents believe it's important to start very early, you know, and, and the question is what, how, what, what kind of books will I have my child watch or read or see? what kind of shows. Um, my mother was very interested, very young, because there were no children of color in the books that we were reading. She would color the books to make sure that we had faces that looked like ours, and very young. Um, not every parent worries about that, but I would argue that if you are, say, a parent of an early maturing girl who, who is older than what she looks, you're stressed by how the world will see them. So I would start young young because of, of the way in which we know uh, even in preschool um, there are biases in how adults might see children of color in preschool and again it's in, it can be unconscious it can be implicit 
we know that in play groups, sometimes children will play and set up hierarchies that they don't understand fully, but they have learned how the world sets these hierarchies up. <laughs> and so I would be talking to children very young about how beautiful their skin color is, about how how different their way of thinking about the world is is important and, and how to appreciate who they are um, very early. And I think all children who witness when other children of difference are being treated differently have to learn how to think about what feelings am I having when I see that? So, I mean, I'm sorry, that's a long-winded way of talking, but um, I, I think I would start early. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. I I was thinking kind of the differences between what I get to work in in terms of schools here in Boston and I taught in New York City before and uh, versus what was available to me growing up in uh, like Western New York. And I, my, my next question is how do we talk about other races or just in, in general? I mean, I grew up in a very poor white community that was all Christian. And so um, like religious differences and socioeconomics and race were all not something that I was exposed to. And also I, I feel like weren't really talked about in, um, as I was growing up, of course, exposed in, in media and, and all that jazz, but wasn't something that was addressed um, versus being in New York City or in Boston where you're exposed to kind of the whole gamut of, of different incomes and races and religions and all that jazz. So how do families who don't have access to um, folks who look and are different from them all around, who practice yeah. differently, um, how do we how do we expose children to this language and and how again like how do we do so appropriately in a way that doesn't separate or make an other but rather celebrates differences? Sure. Well, I I would say that the process that we've been working on for a while in your earlier question around what strategies and being explicit I'm finding is really important. It's ironic that because race is so contentious a topic we are very much avoidant of talking about it. And the more avoidant we are, the more fearful we are to talk about race under any circumstance, the less skills we will develop to help our children or to help ourselves. So before we even say to parents, here's what you say to children, we say, what's going on with you emotionally? And for everyone, whether we're working with middle schoolers or high schoolers or adults, we ask them to do a mindfulness process of calculate, locate, communicate, uh, breathe, and exhale. That is, what feeling are you having when you start to think about racial matters uh, for yourself growing up? You know, where in your body do you feel those feelings? How intense are they? And what messages do you self-talk do you get in coming up? What images? All of this, all of these images, emotions, and how your body is act is is is, is um, behaving influence voice, influence how assertive you are, influence whether you even see when a racial moment is happening. Sometimes people don't even know. They're just confused and overwhelmed. And so I don't think we have the ability to to have a good conversation or a useful conversation with not just our children, but with ourselves and with our partners, unless we've managed the stress of talking about race in general. And so I think once that's accomplished, what we've learned is the more explicit you can be about 
uh, what children can do. Children appreciate much more detail. And I think knowing and being um, okay to say, I'm not really comfortable with the way someone is speaking to me. Or here's what I'd like for you to say um, if someone treats you in this particular way. The more direct, the, the, the more useful children will find um, that they can stand up for themselves, um, that their their own bodies and their own feelings are important, even if other people don't think so. Um, but but you know, in in, in many ways, um, I would argue that even if you're in a predominantly white setting, for example, television is actually a major socialization uh, vehicle for race and racial and religious difference. So even sitting with a cartoon, sitting with a newscast, we know now that even if you watch television for just an hour, you will find bias in the communication of just the news. You can teach children. Do you notice how they're talking about this other religion? (laughs) Uh, And how do you think and feel about that? What if they were talking about your religion that way? So there's plenty of opportunities if we can get the emotional um, literacy part right. I love that. I love those like concrete, useful tips. I feel like it's it's really helpful to hear it in in that manner. Um, Another thing I'd like to approach that I, again, like do is it's a very important thing for me in my classroom is um, like how to keep yourself safe, right? Uh, So in my context, it's often I, I think of it as like the females in my classroom. Like how do you? What do you have to know? Um, growing up in the world as it is today, to keep yourself safe as a woman, and so there, that's something that I bring into into my class each day with my toddlers, and those are things that you know I'm working on now in toddlerhood. And so, in terms of race, you've used the term racial threat, and um, I kind of want to dive into to what that is, and then how can we teach kids to keep themselves safe right in these moments where, you know, it's not like the big learning moment, we're going to sit down with kids and say, okay, how could you handle this situation? But when it comes down to it in that 60 seconds where someone's going to make a, a decision, what, how, do, how do kids keep themselves safe as they get older? Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, it's a very important question. And I think when we're, we're, we're trying to, we're doing research now, um, not only on children, but also adults around um, what are some positive outcomes of racial socialization, or what are, what would we like to see? If I'm a parent and I'm a, I'm worried about how my child will be treated, what would make me feel less scared um, if I knew my children developed um, and had what, which skills would they develop that would make me feel less scared? And so, a big a big skill that's important um, is you know um, being assertive. Do I have voice? Can I know when something's bothering me? And um, can I use it? You know, um, it's one thing if we say something to our children, but then can they take it and make it their own so that even if I'm not around, they'll be able to to, um, to, to protect themselves. So I would say the best way to think about safety is choice Do and decision-making. Can my child make a decision even when I'm not there? Can they, And and I think, that's a better way to think about safety, um, even though, you know, we always hope that our children are surrounded by friends or adults who get them, who understand them, and, and understand how the world might see them. Um, so 
um, um, asking our children, what, is it, what does it feel like? And this is where talking about race is very important, that if we're afraid to talk about race, we can't even get to our, the feelings our children have about those experiences. We think the children learn how not to talk about race much more quickly and with much more socialization than how to actually speak up for themselves or speak up for a friend. We know that there are there are emotional consequences for uh, witnesses or friends who don't get targeted because of their difference, but they see their friends get targeted. And so that bothers them in ways, um, and they don't know what to do, they don't know what to say, and they don't know how to make their friends safe or themselves safe in that process. And I think, um, um, you know, there's also the balance of when it comes to touch, and you mentioned physicality, there are ways in which being physical is very important and helping young people to make the distinction around um, not just good touch, bad touch, but we need physicality to develop who we are, especially young children. And I would say um, decision-making and, and speaking your voice are, are ways to improve the chances that our children will be safe. Lynn, this time of year, parenting can be such a fluster clucks. You've come to the right place. I'm Lynn Lyons, and I've been treating anxious families for over 30 years. I'm Lynn's sister-in-law and co-host Robin Hudson. Join us for Fluster Clucks, a podcast for parents who worry. Wait, that's everybody. Yeah, these last few years have felt like one long anxiety attack for so many. Why do you think parents are always surprised that a podcast about anxiety relates to them, even if no one in their house has an anxiety disorder? Well, worry is human. Everyone does it. And anxiety shows up when we face uncertainty. All the parenting tips you've taught me have been essential. I love to break it down into skills we need to manage worry in our families. We've covered so many topics, depression, burnout, meltdowns, perfectionism. Don't forget scary mothers-in-law. Right, but of course that's not my mother-in-law. Because that's my mother. And a listener. As a psychotherapist, I like to teach parents and kids how to respond to everyday moments in healthy ways. Managing anxiety really can be taught. It really can. And I'll even tell you what to say. We talk about serious stuff, but without being too serious. Anxiety wants everything serious. Anxiety doesn't stand a chance when we're laughing, even about the tough stuff. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. And at, at what point do we start to dive into them like, or, or with them about the difference between like 
when to speak up and when to be able to kind of let it go, right? Like, I don't know, again, like as a woman, if I addressed every microaggression that I experienced each day, I would spend all day trying to to, to deal with those, right, and to address them. And sometimes I have to be like, I'm going to let that go. So at what point do we start to teach kids about that balance? Um, and that's that's a great question because, um, and I've been struggling with it. When we think of racial literacy, which is, is is sort of like if you took racial socialization and you made it much more explicit, like a curriculum or a backpack or a skill set, um, we think that the the three things that are important: ability to read, recast, and resolve. So, read is can I read when a racial moment is happening, like right now? Um, or can I read when somebody's being microaggressive towards me? Sometimes we don't even realize it. Um, and the research suggests that even if you don't realize there's harm coming to you, it could still affect you, right? It, it's sort of like carbon monoxide. It's just because you don't see something that's, uh, but you feel confused, it still could bother you. So the ability to read when a racially stressful situation occurs takes skill in and of itself, and that, again, requires practice. Uh, recasting is what feeling am I having when I've gone through this microaggressive experience and knowing explicitly maybe it was you know I was unhappy but it was only unhappy at a level of a two not an eight on a scale of one to ten then I could judge you know that maybe that's not an issue that I need to deal with but um, if it's at an eight and it really it means it's going to bother me beyond this moment. And I'm still thinking about it two weeks later and affects my body in a particular way. Then I might realize I should do something about that. And then resolve is sort of, do I react in a way that is an underreaction or an overreaction so that I can make a decision that's healthy for me. So I'm not a fan of, of letting anything go. So I would say whenever you have a microaggression, it's okay to make notes about it. But, um, measure its intensity, what effect does it have on you, and then decide if I need to act on it. Um, the research suggests that, you know, if we don't act even on the small things, if they linger, they still affect our, our well-being, especially our health and especially our sleep. So um, the question is, you know, uh, can I see it when it's happening, and then can I judge how much it's affecting me before I decide to let it go? I love that. Thank you. <laughs> so many takeaways for me here. Um, all right. So I guess I the last thing I'd really like to dive into today is just kind of, so where do we start, right? So with our infants and toddlers and preschoolers, making sure that, you know, we have representation in books, which I, I perhaps it's because I am where I am, but I feel like that's something that has been talked about a lot and is, is pretty prevalent. Um, and, and, um, just being able to find our own comfort in talking about race so that we can also address this with children. I think that that first step is so huge, right? That so many folks don't, uh, feel comfortable with it. And, and I, I don't know, I, I think like personally, it comes also from a place of like not wanting to offend somebody, right? Like I know a lot of people say things that I might find offensive throughout the day that aren't intentional. And so I try to be mindful of that too. And in doing that, probably avoid conversation. Um, so how do we like start to reckon with that? Or um, yeah, I guess like 
find tools to have this language. Um, I think that's a great example. I actually, again, would say first start with you. Start with what's happening to you and knowing what it is before you dismiss it. And I think because one problem with, again, not talking about race is we never get the chance to practice becoming confident in talking about race. But the other issue is, is that we more likely, um, even if we're bothered by something, to let it go because we are not prepared for how to deal with it. And so um, first think about you. What effect does it have on me? Should I do something about it if I really care about myself? <laughs> uh, we find that many students of color are more likely, particularly in predominantly white schooling environments, to pretend that it doesn't bother them. And those mm -hmm. lead to longer-term uh, consequences. And I would say that's true for anybody, regardless of race. But um, if you harbor something, we, we know that children tend to say, even um, unconsciously, avoid situations that might bring that same thing back up again. So I might stay away from certain people, certain kids in class, certain former friends. And that it's subtle, but you, you don't realize even if you don't bring it up, you're doing things to, to hide from being in that situation again. So um, I think the goal is how would I actually have a conversation with somebody who upset me? And could I, could I also handle, you know, staying in that conversation for, for longer than a minute, for longer than five minutes? Could I handle somebody challenging me about my positions on difference in race? And can I emotionally stress manage through those experiences? And we think all of these take practice. Um, that mm -hmm. makes sense. Yeah, that's very helpful. Um, well, and it, yeah, I, I think it's it, the fact that it starts with us is is important, but also a challenge, right? Like <laughs> uh, there are so many things that, that start with us first before we respond to these tiny humans. And um, I think especially for like parents in this in the thick of life, in this, you know, postpartum or um, tiny human life, uh, that like ha having the mental energy to kind of look at this stuff and say, all right, I'm going to take a good hard look at what I'm bringing to the table so that I can address uh, what I'm going to bring to my tiny humans is is a challenge in and of itself. Yes. Uh, but I think it's it's important. I mean, a lot of a lot of what we talked about and really by whole emotion coaching method, it starts with you. We can't address these tiny humans until we've addressed ourselves first and really figured out what's what's going on beneath the surface. Uh, but thank you so much for coming and kind of highlighting all these different things for us. Uh, I know you have a you have a book um, promoting racial literacy in schools. Uh, differences that make a difference. Where can folks find that if they want to kind of dive more into this? Um, it's on it's online, an ebook. Um, it's out of Teachers College Press, but um, people can get it through Kindle and a lot of different places. Oh, but um, Teachers College Press, and you know, I think even uh, Amazon has it as well. Awesome. Um, great. So I will link to that in the show notes. Is there anything that you would like to leave our listeners with today um, who have these tiny humans uh, largely birth to five in terms of what what you would want to send as a message for parents today? 
you know, probably um, there's a host of feelings that parents will go through. Um, we think shame and guilt are other thing, things that parents go through that also um, need their own time. And, you know, one is to forgive yourself because, you know, parenting in general, is, as we've talked about, is a lifelong acquaintance with helplessness. So, you know, even if you think you're really having a, you know, great week or month, you know, next month will come by and you'll question everything. Um, when it comes to race, people tend to question even more, am I doing the right thing? And I think having uh, someone you can trust to talk about these fears, particularly around race, is, is very helpful. So even before your children are born, as they are growing as infants and toddlers, um, it, we think about the future in so many things. And, and I think race would be one of those that we might avoid, that if you had a posse of people you could trust to begin having the discussions early, I would recommend then you could work out a lot of fears before you feel comfortable talking to your children about these issues. Awesome. Thank you very much. It's definitely an ebb and flow. Uh, awesome. Well, thank you very much for joining us, and I will uh, connect to your book in our show notes. Thanks for your wise words and sharing your, your research and amazing brain with us today. Thank you, Lisa. I appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to Voices of Your Village. Check out the show notes for this episode and all past episodes at www.seedandso.org podcast. If you love the show, take two minutes to leave a review and spread the love. Thanks for joining our village. Well, hey there, busy mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not gonna tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it but I will give you practical and more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free.